Hello and welcome to episode 167 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies for the casual spike. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, fresh from his travels, the one and only journeyman, Shane Beeps. I can't believe I go on like one week vacation, you make two episodes without me, including Seth, better known as, probably better known as Saffron Olive for the bonus episode. I didn't even get a chance to talk to Seth, but you got to talk to him for like 15 minutes about Ween. Yeah. Yeah. Did did that episode make you want to listen to the band Ween at all? No, I actually, after, after about a couple of minutes, I was just like, I'm out of this insider, inside baseball conversation about Ween. But it was a great, uh, great bonus episode. Great episode with Michael Rapp without me. Michael Rapp, you cannot replace me on this podcast try as hard as you might but uh thanks for being on talking about shadow and it's it's good to be back but more importantly than that yes speaking of replacements dave harberger's on vacation dave does love the replacements you're right that's true i, I think dave is currently in a cave somewhere in texas <laughs> we haven't heard from him um in 48 hours but we're sure he's fine and filling in for him this week is a returning guest friend of the show one of our favorite content creators it's dom harvey Hey, Dom. Thank you, guys. It's good to be back. Uh, I like to think that Dave is the, the Lurus in this, uh, <laughs> in this outfit, and I am the, the outmoded three-drop scrabbling to, <laughs> to, to regain relevance now that he's gone. Yeah, you're an absolute grist in my eyes. I am the grist in your mill, yeah. That's right. So, Dom, um, before we get into like all the housekeeping mumbo-jumbo, your podcast, Domineer's Judgment, it was on okay, hi- Let's do your housekeeping, Dom. Yeah, it was on hiatus for a while because of all the content shifts happening over at Star City. But now, Domineer's Judgment is back. At the time of recording, you've had one episode back. <laughs> I'm sure there will be more. Yeah, the second one is recorded and in the holster, and we'll be editing that after I finish recording this. Um, but yeah, uh, excited to be back. Uh, we are free agents now, so you can find us on uh, Patreon at dominarios underscore judgment you can find the podcast twitter on twitter at uh dominaria underscore pod uh and we should be i think at this point we're still figuring it out but we should be there on whatever podcast app you use so stitcher soundcloud what have you maybe maybe google podcast will pick you up sometimes that forgets about us and and our friends out there are like the google podcast isn't ba- isn't up yet we're like we, we control nothing related to this yeah try as hard we've we've written bill google and he just Radio silence. No, but it's it's super awesome that you're back. Such an amazing modern podcast. I, I'm excited to have you all back. And look, if you're out there, they are free agents now. And share the wealth. Uh, if you wanted to support other content creators, we, you know that if you support us, uh, feel free to support other folks. And if, you, uh, if you're there, go on yeah, patreon.com slash Dominaria's judgment is that correct or Dom underscore Harvia or there's a there's an underscore somewhere in there but just just Google us like we, we hopefully should show up there unless we maybe we really need to work on our SEO I don't know but I, I think we should be there yeah but importantly uh, in this time of magic content needing more support uh, think about the content you enjoy and think about supporting it look if you haven't listened to Dominaria's judgment yet it's a lot like the dive down but they're they're smarter than we are and more accomplished <laughs> competitors. Definitely both of those things. But yes. in every other way, you guys like ripped off our format. Uh, you took Dave from us. You called one another the Godfather. It's 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 uncanny. I listen to a lot of magic podcasts. I'm, I'm just to butter your bread. I listen to so many magic podcasts. Limited shows. The Goldfish Pod was just like a generalist show. And Dominaries Judgment, I think, is the one where I learn the most from. Definitely, yeah. It's, it's just such a rich resource. So check it out if you haven't, and support the show. 
if you can. You're also still, Dom, working with Star City. If if I understood correctly, when you were on Grindcast, you mentioned that you have the competitive beat. So even though most competitive content from Star City no longer exists, you still get to write about that from week to week. Yeah, th- those are not my official marching orders. I, I don't have a, a brief or a remit or anything. I, I'm just there writing articles and uh, I guess... There's only a few of us left now, so someone has to tackle the the competitive formats, and so I guess I have my one column a week to try and encompass all of the stuff that's going on there at any given time, and so, uh, you know, at best I can do, a, I hope, a deep exploration of one topic, but there's so many formats, so many tournaments at any given time that, you know, some of that is going to slip through the cracks, so it's nice to have my own independent stuff where we really can drill down and go super deep on on a format, on a deck, or what have you, which... Uh, you know, when you have to write a, uh, when you have to write a re- weekly column, often uh, some of that gets left by the wayside. No doubt. And then last thing about Dom specifically, you played in the Mythic Championship, the Pro Tour, a couple weeks ago, right? I, I did. Uh, the I, I guess we're not calling it a Mythic Championship anymore. Set Championship. Uh, the the Pro Tour is back. <laughs> Long live the Pro Tour. But more on that in a second, I suppose. Yeah, that was a, a fun experience. I uh, the the last big arena event on that scale I played was actually the first, I guess, online players tour back just at the very start of COVID, and that was when they were really still ironing out the ironing out the details, uh, the the formats for that event in both. The actual magic format was pretty bad, and then just the, the structure of the tournament was, was pretty bad as well. Uh, but since then, I, I think they've iterated on that and, and learned a lot. And uh, I'd heard in the past that these events run pretty smoothly these days and are fun to play. And and that was basically my experience too. And uh, I, I know in the, the set championship Discord that I was organizing all of the logistics for the event, there were quite a few first-timers for whom uh, this was the realization of that dream they'd had to play on the Pro Tour for, for years and years. And when that dream first came to them, I assumed they imagined it would look quite different. It would be some big paper event in some far-flung country. And this is th- this could never be that. Um, but for what it was, it was what they were hoping for. So uh, that, that was a, a nice perspective to have access to. How'd you do in the tournament? Uh, so I went 9-6. and six. I think that was 40th place or thereabouts. Good for nice uh, $3,000 payday and... It, it turns out, if I had done that at the next one, which I unqualified for, then that would get me an invite to the first actual Pro Tour reboot, <laughs> whatever that occurs. But uh turns out this result here doesn't actually lead to anything. So I'm going to have to get back in the dojo and train hard for that one. Well, I have faith in you. More faith in you than myself. I know some good coaches, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe you can reach out to Ellie. All right. Dom. Thank you for for talking about yourself a little bit. Let's talk about what's going on on this week's show. As we've hinted, we are breaking down and reacting to the latest news regarding Magic's organized play announcements. We'll talk about what we liked, maybe what we didn't love, our hopes for the future, our dreams for ourselves, how this change impacts goal setting and other plans for casual spikes. Huge announcement. We're really excited to be able to react to it in real time. We're also going to kick off the show with a breakdown of some of the results from the latest modern super qualifier and showcase challenge that occurred over the weekend. And hopefully at some point in that conversation, Dom will even help us understand the difference between these events and why they have different names, even though they have a lot of the same players and they're really impressive tournaments to compete in that maybe one day Shane and I can get to as well. Before all that, though, we got some dive down housekeeping as well. Shout out to the newest patrons to join the dive down nation. Tessa and Peter. Thank you. Thank you, both of you. Also, we got a couple new reviews. 
I uh, love new review day. Shane, we got a new review from Coogie194. Okay, what's perfect. Up? What's up, Coogie? We also got a review from a friend of yours, <laughs> E75847267. Love it. Don't put your phone number on the internet. We appreciate both of you all giving reviews. Of course, uh, much like Dominary's Judgment is brought to you, we are also brought to you through support of our patrons through patreon.com, patreon.com slash the dive down. Uh, a buck a week is all it takes to get you into the definitively discreet dive down discord. Today, I think topics of conversation included going back to the well of that like 2016 New York Times accent quiz where you could like say how you say certain words and it tells you where your accent's from and it's like ridiculously accurate. And then we guess we talked about like modern events and things like that too. So boring. Yeah. The New York Times told me that I grew up in Skokie, Illinois. And I'm just like, New York Times, how did you know? <laughs> oh, I'm... I'm very keen to see what it gets for me. That's uh, I'm gonna put it through its paces. One of one of our patrons, I think, is a Kiwi, and they were like, "I guess the closest thing to New Zealand English is Hawaii," because that was like that was the heat map that they got. So, um, so thanks for uh, supporting us through Patreon. Uh, of course, we have more swag as besides the the Discord and the deck boxes are slowly inching their way across the globe. And one of these months, we will have them to distribute out to our five dollar and up patrons. And of course, ManaTraders.com. We talk about them every week. ManaTraders.com is the best way to rent Magic Online cards. We see you out there. We see a lot of people jumping on the Mana Traders uh, wagon this past month. Thank you for using our sign-up code, the Dive Down 2022. That gets you 15% off your first two months. And another place to use that code, the Dive Down 2022, for 15% off your order is, of course, Barrister and Man, our uh, ongoing relationship with that company, and Will, a citizen of the Dive Down Nation. They're making new awesome fragrances, soaps, shaving soaps, all kind of stuff for you, your home, your loved ones. Uh, use that code to let Will know that we sent you. And thanks a lot. Thank you, Shane. All right, let's jump into this breakdown. Since we have two tournaments that we want to touch on, as well as a very lively dive down portion of today's episode, I'm thinking we just scan the top eights without really belaboring the broader metagames from these events because even these top eights have plenty to chat about. Oh, yeah. these this, Especially the second event. My goodness. Yeah. So let's start with the Super Qualifier. The deck list went up on Tuesday, March 29th. So I'm guessing the event happened on Monday, the 28th. Maybe it was on Sunday. But the winner, Mario Gomez 097 on Blue White Hammer. Their main deck featured three Burrington First Tender, three Giver of Runes, a Cauldra Complete, which I don't think we've seen in any of these post-lures hammer decks yet, as well as a Sword of Fire and Ice. And then they also threw three mana leak in the sideboard as, as one of the uses for their blue mana. Yeah, they definitely wanted to be protected against red and potentially other colors through Giver of Roots. <laughs> or colorless. Yeah, is Burrington good against anything other than like the burn decks? Fury? I don't know. Yeah, that Fury is probably the big one, isn't it? What do you think, Dom? I think the theory is it's, it's very good against Murktide, where, you know, it Rip Wars Ragavan while also protecting from, uh, you know, Unholy Heat, Lightning Bolt, stuff like that. Uh, so having this one drop, which you can just kind of forward into your early turns, that's going to delay their starts and then also offer you a layer of protection on your own big turn is, uh, is really nice there. So it's the young wolf of Hammer. 
<laughs> something like that. I yeah. Uh, I, I would say Ragavan more powerful than either of those cards in the abstract. However, situationally, uh, you know that they they win the head to head. Yeah, that's probably the same philosophy that led to the three givers too, because that's a card that a lot of hammer decks have kind of moved away from. I would say even in the Luris era, and now it's like between three givers and four in the for, in the forge tenders, you have six ways to protect yourself. Main. Yeah, I think Caldra. If you play Caldra. I think you probably want an effect like Giver of Runes because one of the issues that Cauldra faced as soon as it like hit the, the MH2 metagame is, oh wait, it's indestructible. That doesn't mean it can't be exiled. And so you, I think you really want a way to shore up your game against especially Solitude, uh, which can just put all that effort you take into getting this onto the board and just wipe it right out. Yeah, and it's both sides of that, right? Like also protecting the Stoneforge Mystic which is sometimes your only way of getting that Caldera onto the battlefield. All right, second place, we got Juju Bean 2004 on Merktide. Pretty stock list. Dom, as long as you're here, I did have one question I'd love to ask your opinion on. I see a lot of Merktide decks running sideboard Relic of Progenitus. And being an occasional Merktide player, I feel a little bit of tension with that card because if I'm ever trying to actually pop it off, I'm sacrificing my graveyard as well. Do you have a sense for why Merktide runs Relic over something like Soul Guide Lantern or other one-sided graveyard hate pieces? Yeah, I, I think you can take your pick of those effects, and depending on what you want those for. So, if you expect to face a lot of you know Living End, for example, or other graveyard combo decks, then you take your pick of those. All of them are going to do the job, and Relic is maybe actually the worst of those in some of those situations where uh, it's the most expensive and is somewhat symmetrical, and it has the activation cost. Uh, for for the mass exile effect so yeah if, if you were just targeting stuff like living end maybe you look towards torment script or guy lantern something like that instead I, I do think you can board this card in in the mirrors though um where just having it chipping away at their graveyard over time is going to make it so much harder for them to to get delirium so their channelers and their unholy heats are going to be neutered and then uh if that effect is eating away at them turn after turn even just putting murktide on the sack is going to be much easier uh, said than done and so even though the effect has some symmetry to it you can control the pacing of how that plays out and so if you're just eating one of their cards every turn stocking your own graveyard you can get to a turn where you play your murktide and now you've kind of your, your graveyard has done its job so to speak and now you can go for the the second activation if you like and you can actually use those two things in concert too where if you control murktide regent then don't forget this is uh it, it gets the buff when any instant or sorcery leaves your graveyard at any time. And so, you know, you you pop your relic, you eat their entire graveyard, and now your motide region gets even bigger uh, out of that equation too. Yeah, interesting. Speaking of graveyard decks, third place, we got Dr. Vendigo on Living End. Also looking pretty stock, 75. I've been liking this deck a lot lately. I kind of feel like the party's going to end for this deck eventually, as it keeps getting more popular, just because... Some of the graveyard hate out there is so powerful against this. And just like hard casting a curator of mysteries isn't always going to do the job. But living in still putting in work. Fourth place, Bomberos on Is It Merktide? But this is a slightly more controlling build of it. We have two main deck, Jace the Mind Sculptor. Probably in anticipation of all the four color that's running around right now. No Dragon's Rage Channeler. But we still have the Merktides and the Ragavans and a singleton Brazen Borrower. This also has two Dress Down main, a single Dead and Gone. And then in the sideboard, we got two Chalice of the Void. 
And then the six mana Chandra Awakened Inferno. This is like practically Blue Moon without the Blood Moons. Dom, is Chandra Awakened Inferno real? I... Can you play one six drop? Yeah, well, okay. So th- this is... <laughs> This is almost like a treat that you get to explore for specifically one matchup, and that's blue-white, where the game is going super long, and so you can expect to get to the point where maybe you're flooding out a little bit, or even if you're not, you have six lands in play, uh, and you will get to attempt to cast this card, and because of its uh, very kind of ham-fisted wording here, it's going to resolve and going to start doing its thing. I just am never sure if that thing is actually good enough in this day and age, where uh, against even the slower control decks in this format. They have stuff like Call of Storm Giants, which, if they've established control of the game, can close it out pretty quick. Uh, the Wandering Emperor is a pretty popular finisher now as well. And so that idea of neither player is doing anything, and eventually I just cast my card, and they, they're they taken off guard, and it just wins the game by itself. I don't know if that really happens often enough for this to be worth it. And and we've seen the same tactic attempted in standard, pioneer, historic, various formats over time. And it's never it's never really stuck around for the long haul. You know, people try it. You see the one Chandra pop up from time to time. But it, it never becomes stock in the way that you might expect it to if it was actually good at its job. Yeah. Yeah, Jace just always keeps coming back. Always like a one or two of in a lot of these blue mid-rangey or combo or control decks. Like it even pops up in footfalls and chandra i own the one and like sometimes i'll put it in even online and then i just never even board it in and it's like maybe it could have been a better card in fifth place we got theo jung on four color blink this is an 80 card deck it's yorion it has a bunch of sideboard one-ofs but these are offset by four main deck copies of eladamri's call which something i'm always harping on is just like the sideboards in these decks don't do anything reliable half the time, at least in my experience. But I feel like Eladomri's Call is a really elegant way to solve that problem, especially in, you know, a very creature-heavy version of Blink, which this is. It has a, a little bit of the Elementals package with Risen Reef, uh, main deck Endurance, and Subtlety. One of this, one of the other things about this deck that stood out to me is that it has Ewit and Ephemerate, but it's not playing Time Warp. What happened to Time Warp? Is that just too slow? Too dirtily? I think it's still fine. You, you can play it. I've seen a few lists pop up recently that, that do have that still. And if anything, it's almost more of a combo piece with Renin 6, where you can get to the ultimate a turn faster, and then once you do ultimate, all of those lands that are now padding your hand from the f- from the previous five activations, those all become Time Warps now. And that's that, that gives you this, this end game that you can race towards uh, very quickly. I think the reason why you don't see it in conjunction with the Ewit Ephemerate stuff, is that if you have that going and it's not being contested and you you're, you get to do your thing, yeah, Time Warp's going to put it away, but what if you're just looping Counterspell instead, right? Or what if you're looping uh, Fury, Solitude against a creature-heavy deck? If you have this, uh, this gimmick firing on all cylinders, then it almost doesn't matter what exactly you're pairing it with unless you're against like a very specific type of combo deck where you need this one thing that just actually seizes control of the game by itself. In sixth place, we have another four-color Blink deck. This time it's McWinsauce. This is a less creature-heavy version than the previous version. Uh, Much more controlling. It's running 22 instants and sorceries. Theo, Jung only had 15. I think one of the things that happened post-Lurus ban is a lot of people are starting to look at Yorian and as kind of like Exhibit A and Companions are going to be a problem and we're starting to really see at least the popularity of Yorian come into fruition i know you talked a little bit about this in in the first episode of dominary's judgment as well but i'm I, i'm curious like 
Do you think Yorion can be a problematic card or can enable other problematic decks? Or is just like the deck size and just the type of interactions it enables enough of a safety valve that if anything, at worst, it'll just be like an annoying controlling strategy that people just have to figure out a way to beat without necessarily taking over the format? I think the thing with Yorion compared to Lurus, and you, you could take this as a good thing or a bad thing, is that it doesn't really add anything new to the decks that have it. Where with Lurus, you could take your incredibly fast aggro deck and just free roll a Lurus as your companion, and now you had this grindy mid-game just bolted on for free. With Yorion, it's it's harder to do that. Not every deck can easily accommodate those extra 20 cards. And for, for as much as I like to meme about, you know, Yorion Hammer or whatever, uh, there are some sacrifices associated with that in a lot of these shells. And so... Yorion basically takes a deck that already is going to be somewhat slow, somewhat grindy, and makes it uh, even slower, even grindier, and better on that axis. But it doesn't add anything fundamentally new to a deck the way that Lurus does. And so I think there's a cap on how powerful and how obnoxious it can be. That being said, now that its main rival as a companion has been cut down to size, um, that comparative advantage is almost exclusively the preserve of these four-color decks or or other Yorion decks. And it wouldn't surprise me if just the companion mechanic as a whole, uh, they, they have to take action against, or Yorion specifically, uh, in, in a few months from now. I think, though, the main Yorion deck at the moment in, in four-color, the things that are offensive about that, it's not really Yorion. It's all of the MH2 stuff. <laughs> it's Red and Six. It's Omnath. It's using... Uh, fetch lands in kind of the most obnoxious way in modern where they're these perfect mana fixers that, that also pair with your Renin six and your omnath and it's that there are so many parts of that recipe which you can take offense to and yorion is is way down that list for me exactly that's incredible i feel like if they're gonna do anything about the companion mechanic at this point it would have to be not because yorion individually did something wrong but if also like an obosh deck becomes somehow egregious or zerda or lutri there was a, a, a Lutri deck in the top 16 of one of the events this weekend, which uh, you, you always love to see. But Oh my god, was it Collins? It, it was Collins, yeah. I, uh, yeah. I, I really envy Collins for this uh, retirement that he's found for himself, where he just he, he he doesn't really play Magic or talk about Magic, but every three months he'll log on and just post a new Lutri deck list that he 5-0'd with, and that's, that's the extent of his engagement, which I think is very healthy at this point. If you're not having fun, why play the game? Exactly. All right, seventh place, we got underscore neptune on grixis shadow look at this two main deck liliana of the veil four scourge of the skyclave it's back scourge is back just last week michael rap was telling us why scourge probably isn't going to make the cut and neptune proved us all wrong it's also got a couple copies of teamer battle rage because it has zero copies of dress down in the 75 bit of a nambo with the scourge and then finally four sideboard torpor orbs I mean, this is this has got to be because of the blink decks, right? Like they're not trying to shut down humans anymore. You, you need a plan for four color. You know, you you know you're going to have to go through a good four color player to win any given tournament. And there are a few different ways you can do that. We saw Torak uh, be one of the the go to cyborg cards for that matchup in the past. Torpor Orb is appealing though because one of the the main twists on four color that we've seen recently is the elemental stack you know, with Risen Reef and really leaning hard on the ephemerate stuff. 
And against that version, Torek is still good, but it's not game over in quite the same way. But Torpor Orb really is lights out. If they can't remove that card, then they are going to have a really tough time of it. Um, and so I don't know if four is the right number, but it's certainly a bold statement. All right. And then in eighth place, Mario Brega on a pretty stock looking version of Murktide. Let's jump over to the showcase challenge that happened, happened over the weekend. Shane, what did that tournament look like? Well, this is the modern showcase challenge, Dan, not the super qualifier. I did some research for us. Okay, so here's the here's the Ooh. difference. So the the showcase is the challenge that replaces the regular challenge. You have to use QPs to enter it, and those get and then doing well on that gets you invited to some other thing. I don't really get I don't really get the magic online <laughs> event structure even after looking at that page for like the twentieth time. But super qualifiers, there's like eight a year or so across different formats, and you can enter these with cold hard cash or play points or QPs and they have higher payouts. And then the first and second place of those attend the set championship, which is what Dom just competed in, I believe, right? The arena set championship. Yes. So, okay. (laughs) (laughs) The showcase challenges. This is an eternal source of frustration. So you, you can play in these. They're, they're gated by the qualifier points, which you earn in prelims and leagues and, and so on. Uh, and so these are open events. The top eight of these get to play in either the Showcase Challenge or the Showcase Qualifier, whichever one this is. It's a Showcase isn't. Qualifier, I believe. That's what I yes. looked up. I, was, okay. I don't even know what that is. Well, so what, what you would think is the first stage would be the Showcase Qualifier because that that would qualify you for the Showcase Challenge, right? That, that yes. intuitively mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense. However, you would be wrong because, <laughs> in fact, the Showcase Challenge, if, if you top eight that, you get to the Showcase Qualifier, which is the qualifier for the mocks. <laughs> yes, that's right. So you, you win that. You win the second stage of this process. You get one of the eight seats in... Uh, the Magic Online Championship Series, which also does come with an invite to the set championship uh, as well. So d- despite having played in many of both <laughs> of these events, I still routinely get uh, uh, get those confused. But in any case, this is the last showcase challenge of this season. And then uh, the 24 players there, plus anyone who wins one of these last chance qualifiers, uh, they will be competing in a few weeks for that one slot uh, to to the big stage. All right, thank you for uh, guiding us for that for the through the labyrinth that is the Magic Online competitive environment. Most importantly, we have a top eight, and it begins with Musasabi on Golgari Rock. Uh, okay, so we've we've gone back in time a bit with a bit of also contemporary cards, but. This has some modern classics. It has Liliana of the Veil. It has Dark Confidant. It has Tarmogoyfs. It has Inquisitions of Thought Seizes and Assassin's Trophy coming back out of a brief retirement back into modern, along with Four Fatal Push. More importantly, though, it has Four Elvish Reclaimer, which we talked about. Uh, we talked about this deck a week or so ago because it first reared its head there. And Elvish Reclaimer works really well with any deck going through its lands, but especially something like uh, Urza Saga. And, but otherwise, it's, a, it's kind of surprising to see a number of these modern classics come back into style. Uh, a really easy and simple <laughs> black-green Golgari creature in land package. No red to speak of. This is not Jund. It's just Golgari. Don't forget, we're running three copies of Witherbloom Command. I just refuse to believe this card is modern power level, but here it is. Here it is. 
and and I need I need a take of someone who's who's better than I am. So Dom, what is your take on a deck on a deck like this? I I have no idea. I had to ask Ari, and Ari was uh, was able to, to to walk me through this. But I, I was going to put this down to just this player, Musasabi, who is an amazing player and who often is seen doing well with these very wonky mid-range decks. But I think the the big picture here is just there's a lot of cascade combo running around at the moment. And so being a deck with a bunch of discard and then your threats line up pretty well. Like Douthy Voidwalker actually against both Crashing Footfalls and Living End is is very strong. And then against Rhinos, uh, you know, the card Tamagoy, if, if you can get it to a 4-5, is, is pretty nice. And so... It's kind of just the the classic mid rangey recipe, but your threats are all really good, uh, right? You've got Goy, Voidwalker, Reclaimer can be good, um, Urza Saga as a threat. I, I'm less sure about like Dark Confidant, Tireless Tracker, Liliana in this day and age, but uh, they're, they're, they can be the supporting cast on the bleachers, you know, cheering on uh, the, the main stars. Yeah, I feel like the one defense I can think of for Witherbloom Command, at least, in addition to Elvish Reclaimer, is... It's doing this Golgari build your own Renin Six where you can get back like Bosejus or Tekanumas that you are cycling or channeling for value or nurturing peatlands that you're that you're cycling. So it's like you're putting all these cards in your graveyard sometimes for effect. And then maybe you can also find a way to piece together a mana source. Or in Witherbloom Command's case, the land is going back in your hand. So yeah, I mean, a decent amount of the time, it's, uh, you know, kill your Renin Six, get back my Urza Saga. Or it's uh, kill your Esper Sentinel and your Springleaf Drum, right? So if you can get value from two modes on that card, then that's a really good place to be. And I think you can just about do that enough of the time, but uh, that's the, the, the jury is uh, still out on that one for me. Cool. Uh, second place, we got Sima Omero on Teamer Crash Cade. This version has three main deck Blood Moons. It also runs one Valakid Awakening. I've played a bunch of Cascade, as as both of you know. I can never make up my mind on Valakid Awakening. It's usually only ever a one of. Is it underplayed in these Cascade decks? Because at least in Living End, I feel like a single Valakid Awakening would be a really great way to do anything that you've drawn with your Living Ends. Because those are three ofs. You don't have a source for Black Mana to ever cast them. And like the best thing you can do is hope that you draw Grief so that you can pitch away a dead living end to grieve your opponent but if you ever heaven forbid draw all three living end which is something that happened to me in a league the other day it just kind of feels like you're done <laughs> unless maybe you can hard cast some four mana four fours Velicate awakening dom yay or nay yay for me I-, I like the card a lot in these shells i think i like it more than a lot of people do uh and yeah it- especially with living end you can get these major feel bads of you just draw all of them or you draw enough where like the first one gets countered or or whatever and there's just nothing else you can do at least with rhinos right you almost want to draw a copy of your suspense spell in your opening hand sometimes not the case with living end and so you do see some lists either having the full four or some of them run the fourth in the sideboard for those longer games where you're going to need to resolve multiple copies or it's going to get disrupted uh so I, i don't hate it i think the one mark against it now is with Baseju and Otabara in the mix, you now actually have these monocolor utility lands that are vying for some of the same slots, and you just don't have that many actual lands in the deck, right? You're looking at 19, maybe 20. Uh, and so at that point, just finding room for this this tapped red land, eh, you can say it's, it's kind of a spell, it's kind of a land, but if you have to play it at a land, 
it, it is going to be somewhat clunky sometimes. Yeah, I guess I also don't hate it in a deck with main deck Blood Moons. Like, if you're paired against Burn, yeah. just get rid of those Blood Moons if, you know, you have the time to even do that. It is an instant, so you can maybe position yourself with that too. Do you... Are you more inclined to play Valakit in Living In than something like Footfalls? I think so, yeah. Um, the, the the one you might want to end would be Glimpse of Tomorrow, actually, as well. But with that one, it's weird because it's technically a sorcery, right, or, or an instant. And so it can't be glimpsed into itself as a land. And so there's a cap on how many cards like that you can put in your deck. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do like the card on the whole. Um, we, we saw it pop up, I think, in some list of the Aspiring Spike uh Jeskai Lotus Field deck and I enjoyed seeing it there. And yeah, just whenever it pops up, I, I, I always love it. Awesome. Up next, third place, Loriwa on Eldrazi Tron, sort of. Eldrazi Tron variant. It's a reality smasherless Eldrazi Tron. It kind of looks like you would expect, sort of otherwise, but it's definitely removal and sweeper heavy in that it has uh, three dismember. Three Warping Whale, two All is Dust, and tops things off with two uh, main deck Ulamog at the 10 drop spot, which only decks like Eldrazitron can bother trying to cast. So this one also has four Urza's Tower, which I'm actually not sure if that's a typical, excuse me, <laughs> not Urza's Tower, Urza's Saga. We have two Urza's Saga, and that's not always in decks like this. But I think Eldrazi Tron can get enough value out of it for especially things like Expedition Map to make Tron when it needs to or something like that or get that relic, one of its four relics that can handle graveyard decks, cycle through the deck, which is kind of what you want to do in this. And of course, the sideboard is all about Karn the Great Creator and the Wishboard. And I just love, I love every Karn Wishboard because you always get to see the boat. You know, Sky Sovereign. I don't know what this deck is doing in today's modern, but... Uh, it just seems like a, a lot of it's just, it seems like it's trying to do what other decks are doing better in terms of being a big mid-range deck where your removal doesn't hurt you for for up to four life points. I could not tell you either. And if you had said Eldrazi Tron is going to do well this weekend, I would have assumed that it was the same reason I gave I gave before. Is that there's a lot of Cascade decks running around, a lot of you know, is it Motai, stuff like that. And so maybe it's a good weekend to be playing Chalice of the Void. And yet, you look at this deck, zero copies of Chalice in I the main deck. I guess that's probably so, a, more, a very no important thing to, know, to mention, yes. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, this this used to be what people said about the deck, right? It's four Chalice of the Void, and then 56 just cards making up the numbers. Um, and now it's just 60 cards <laughs> making up the numbers. So no Chalice and no Smasher, but yeah, four Mana Reshaper. Those ones are bulletproof. The most important card in the yeah. deck. They, they have a lifetime tenure. So this deck, it's got a single Swamp and a single Urborg in its lands. The only black card is three copies of Dismember, man. Yeah, you don't, you don't take that life loss if you don't have to. You don't need it, man. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, that's just a, yeah, I mean, a fascinating deck that I got there. Uh, Felidur in fourth place on a stock-looking living end deck. And fifth place, X Whale, uh, Will Kruger, going in with Crash Cade. Essentially a stock looking list. Oh, I, I can't think of a, a sadder testament to Hammer's position post Luris than X Whale ditching Hammer Time. And I think Will's been really happy with Crash Cade, so good good for him. But even so, like it it just feels like such a departure for a player who had a deck that they've been so successful with for 
what feels like at least a year now. It's uh, it's always nice to have those barometers in a format where if you want to know if a deck is good right now, you just look at their Goldfish page and see if they're still playing it. And if they're not, then maybe it's time uh, to look elsewhere. I mean, that being said, you know, it did win uh, the, the other tournament that we spoke about just now. And you still see Hammer popping up, still just fundamentally very yeah. powerful deck. Uh, but yeah, uh, hostile environment for it at the moment. All right, sixth place, Ellen07 on Bant, Iliad Company. Primarily, it's just a uh, Selesnya deck splashing into blue for four main deck Teferi Time Ravelers and then some sideboard access to Lavinia, Azorius Renegade, and Meddling Mage. It's it's funny that it's after a few years, I think, at this point, like we all kind of talked about Lavinia during one of our very early spoiler episodes. Remember that, Stan? We were like, here's all the things that Lavinia can do and X, Y, and Z. And then she kind of just disappeared until like maybe about three or so months ago. And then I've, I feel like we've, we've seen Lavinia in plenty of decks, especially ones that are splashing into blue. Yeah, I mean, I think we expected Lavinia to deal with Tron and colorless decks when in fact it's all the other stuff that she that she locks out. Cascade, I think in particular. Yeah, I, I think that when you, you, you bring into being an entire family of decks based around cascading into zero-cost cards, and then also you have a set where you have full cycles of powerful cards that you can pay for zero mana, at that point, Lavinia stock just rises and rises. Um, and so it's almost like if the format has this pushed or degenerate stuff going on, the better Lavinia is likely to be. And so, yeah, it, it really has come into his own o- over the past few months and uh, is one of the main reasons to play blue in your hammer deck at this point. Yeah, it makes good sense. So it's interesting that it has to stretch its mana base a bit this deck that's typically just two colors. I mean, we we did see when this deck was kind of the, the main thing to do in modern. We saw various builds that would go into Bant mana, specifically, I think, for Teferi. And there were some more complex builds that would have like Oath of Nyssa and things like that. And then go and try to do the, the creature combo thing. But is this really worth it right now? And I think, again, it's probably, what, stopping the... The Crashcade and Cascade uh, issues that we see in the in the meta, well, issues on, in my opinion, of course. But I'm curious again if this is like a deck that needs to be hedging in that fashion, or this should just be leaning harder into what it's already trying to do and combo off. Yeah, I I think the creature combo decks tend to be good against you know Living End on the whole, and then Heliod more so than Yorgmoth. Actually, this is one of the big kind of splits between them is. Yorgmoth really suffers against Rhinos, whereas I think Heliod can, can go toe-to-toe there. Uh, but w- once again, if you think this is a big weekend for, for Cascade decks, being a deck with four main deck to ferry, four main deck Ranger Captain, just by yourself, like, that's a great recipe. And then add on this fast creature combo that lines up pretty well against them. Um, yeah, it's the perfect place to be. And then if you think about more broadly, what is this deck weak to? Well, it, it does have a solitude problem. And I guess Fury, you could lump in there too. Uh, and just th- the deck is inefficient, right? This was the thing that even in its heyday, people noted about it. It's you're you're trying to be a collector company deck. You have this four drop and then a bunch of three drops. Um, and you're in a format that is so efficient now that Lavinia is a card that kind of flips that script around where, you know, you are slowing down the pace of the game and the window in which things can happen. Um, and then it's good against the main combo decks. It's good against specific cards that you care about a lot. And then just in general in the format, uh, it, it's looking pretty good. Seventh place, we have Stanerson on an elementally style four-color blink deck. 
and that looks pretty normal to me. And then eighth place, we have Sneaky Misato on a four-color control deck uh, based around the cards you would expect. But uh, I think what's one thing I do want to point out, and I feel like we haven't really talked about it, and it is perhaps my miss or perhaps the podcast miss. I feel like we, we undervalued March of Otherworldly Light. And that's a card that I feel like we've I've uh, I've seen in a lot of deck lists keep popping up. It's a card that has a uh, clear strengths in instant speed. It can tag lands, which I think is a huge thing that we might have overlooked. Uh, kind of looking at it as like a prismatic ending adjacent card, but I think the ability to hit a land for a single white mana at instant speed has been really good for it. Uh, it's really just Arza Saga. It's the only land that it can tag. Creature lands. Well, oh yeah, yeah. Touche. Hey, touche. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I think that that is that's something I think we we did miss and has lent power to these Zorius and four color based uh, control decks. Cool. I uh, wanted to point out briefly because I uh, I like this deck so much. I wanted to get an expert opinion. The Pascal Maynard's tenth place Rakdos mid range deck from the Showcase Challenge. And we've talked about similar style decks to these, but basically it's running high-value Rakdos creatures, including the two elementals of Grief and Fury. Interestingly, it doesn't run DRC because I think it doesn't have room for sort of the DRC and Bauble package and maybe doesn't need it. And it has a, you know the large spell suite of hand interaction and removal and additional card draw in something like Knight's Whisper, which I think is kind of an underrated and underplayed card in the format. Uh, three Blood Moon main, and the secret sauce, of course, is the sort of reanimation instance that of Malakir Rebirth, Feign Death, and Undying Malice, which the latter two are effectively identical cards with different flavor. And essentially what this does is anytime you would have to, say, sacrifice something like the Evoke Elementals or Dothy Voidwalker or Fulminator Mage out of the sideboard. When when that kind of stuff happens, anything that you have to sacrifice, you can get back by tagging it with a Malachi Rebirth or an Undying Malice, something like that. And those cards instantly come back to, not instantly, they come back to uh, the battlefield ready to, in terms of the and the elemental end of thing, to uh, double strike 3-3 three, three with Fury or just to be a 3-2 Menace with Grief. It's just kind of like a cool-looking deck in which there's a lot of value there, and I think that there. I just I'm curious at how well a deck like this can do in today's modern. And I mean, with Pascal Maynard, you don't really get a great feel <laughs> for how good a deck is because uh, they're an excellent player. But uh, Dom, do you have any thoughts on decks like this in the post Luris game where we're starting to see three, four, five mana permanents in main and sideboards? It's certainly cool. I, I like the idea behind the deck a lot. I think if you, and we saw this with the, the deck that won by uh, Musasabi, any kind of uh, Thoughtseize, Dathy Voidwalker deck, I think that's uh, just a really good place to be at the moment. And so you could embellish that with just with uh, just the normal Ragdos cards, right? Like Ragavans, and Croxers, uh Season of Pyromancer, stuff like that. But if you want to add a little bit of spice, then you have this uh, Blink-esque angle almost uh, ready to go as well right on yeah i like that deck a lot um i might this this might be something i mess around with but in, in preparation for uh stg dallas in a few weeks so uh, don't be surprised if i'm playing that in some side events but i think that takes us out of this breakdown and let's get to the meat of the discussion 
uh, in the the dive down when we start talking about the most recent uh, announcements related to uh, the return of competitive magic. So stay with us. Alrighty then, Thursday, huge news. The Pro Tour's back. And I gotta say, I don't think we were expecting an exciting announcement of this level because we knew there was going to be an organized play announcement happening today. A lot of speculation. They hired Huey Jensen to, you know, help facilitate Watsi's vision and model for organized play. And this is basically, as, as far as I recall, Huey's first public output in his role of, uh, I think it's director of play programs. And, and just a note up the top. I was very fortunate to be invited on a basically press conference preview. Do a little hat with a press card in it. Yeah, of course. You know, I have a pen in either ear um, where I got to hear Huey speak and actually answer some questions about this. And that's where we got a lot of the information about this announcement and why we're able to put out this episode so shortly after the news goes formally public. And likewise, I want to I want to mention that this is all still super fresh. And as we're going to mention from time to time, some of the finer details are still to be announced. Um, and in some cases, we know when those details are going to come. And in some cases, we do not. But overall, we're being very careful about what we're talking about, what we're sharing. Things might continue to get clarified in the coming days. Uh, and there might be some more confusing elements that we don't even fully grasp just yet. But in general, we know what the big picture is. The Pro Tour is coming back. We know how people are going to play in the Pro Tour and the World Championships. And let's start breaking down what we know. Right on. Yeah, I think it's also important, Stan, to mention that you did not get this access through uh, your participation in the dive down. It's through your writing on Polygon. Yes, that that is. Because I've been working with Polygon a little bit doing magic coverage, I was invited to participate in that as a journalist, more so than a podcaster. But to me, you know, it's one and the same. Like, <laughs> what am I, if not a public figure on behalf of the casual spikes out there? Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. So, like, let's start going through this, Dan. What, what were you told? What did we hear here? All right. Starting in July, Wizards is formally kicking off their 2022-2023 organized play season. Even though it happens all in 2023. Not exactly. And I'll specify what's happening in 2022. But in this upcoming season, we are going to see the return of the, quote, Pro Tour, as well as World Championships. It's not Set Championship. It's not Players Tour, Mythic Championship. It's the Pro Tour, baby. Wow, the words Pro Tour are written down somewhere. Yeah. Honestly, by the time people are listening to this, they maybe maybe have even seen the graphics. The Pro Tour official (laughs) iconography. So that's the headline. Within that, we're going to see three Pro Tours per annual season. The first Pro Tour is going to take place in early 2023, and it's going to be like previous Pro Tours, split format, and it's going to be draft for one half and pioneer constructed on the other half. And it's going to be tabletop. They're going to do shuffles, paper cards, (laughs) deck checks, judges on hand, those big black and white dice that are really clear on camera. Yeah. And not as many shuffles, though. This is Pioneer we're talking about. So, I mean, man, that's a heck of a way to get Pioneer back on people's radars is have a a Pro Tour early 2023. Yeah, I mean, what better way to kind of indicate that they made this format pre-pandemic and they intended for it to stick around? And perhaps, like on some level, this is 
part of a marketing strategy to get people engaged in this style of gameplay. But Dom, the last time you were on our show, you actually spoke to the importance of Pioneer as a format, as a way to engage players, as an accessible, constructive medium and format. And I think probably on some level, Watsi agrees. And I mean, people keep talking about how much fun and healthy it is. So now we get to see it on the world stage. Yeah, I think especially with the the lesser emphasis on standard recently, although that also is coming back as a total format, uh, as we learned in this announcement, I think Pioneer has this really useful role as the smallest paper format or the, the gateway format into organized play there. And this was the intention back when Pioneer launched. And Pioneer had just dire circumstances for its launch uh, in terms of the timing of the sets around it. And then just as it was getting this foothold in organized play, COVID hit and wiped out not just paper play, but also any momentum the Pioneer might have had. And so I'm glad that they have enough faith in the format and the concept to try and reboot that. And uh, to to go back to what you said at the top, it feels so good to get to say the word Pro Tour again. You know, we, we, we've had to suffer through these terms like Mythic Championship <laughs> and Set Championship and... Players tour. Players tour, right. And it's a really good illustration of the importance of branding and how just a small change in the signifier like that can really have a big impact on people. Where if you've been around the game for a long time, the the idea of the Pro Tour is wrapped up in decades of, of history. And it really, it does matter to a lot of the, the enfranchised players. And if you're not, if you're wondering, you know, what, what's this competitive scene in this in this game like? Well, the word Mythic Championship means nothing to you and sounds like kind of hokey and tacky, if anything. And Set Championship is, well, that's, uh, you know, that's pretty generic. You can imagine that on some kind of marketing document. But Pro Tour is, like, intuitively, that makes some kind of sense. And you, you can see that by the fact that, uh, you know, Flesh and Blood, they didn't steal the branding for the Mythic Championship. They stole the branding for the Pro Tour because that is a yeah. very just it, it, sensible, intuitive way to brand something. And so many sports or esports are going to have some variation of that right uh and so I, I think it's great to just hear those two words again and hopefully we'll get to to hear them live in the announcement on thursday uh and i think that that one change is going to earn back some goodwill by itself now it's going to lead to the inevitable discussion of well is this actually the pro tour that we all knew and love and remember fondly and we're potentially gatekeeping people out of who knows uh you know there's always discourse uh, lurking around uh, the corner but i think that is you know if if we had this announcement with the same structure to it but it, it still had the mythic whatever branding or other branding to it i think it will be received a lot less uh funly right um yeah i, I when when i saw that it was pioneer and i knew we were having you on dom i was like Dom's got to be salivating at the three words Pioneer Pro Tour put together. Well, I, I, I haven't been winning that much in Pioneer recently. So, uh, uh, you know, if we, if we can get a vintage Pro Tour in there, then I, I'm going to be all ears. But maybe not on that one. You're going to have to wait at least a couple more seasons before we get a vintage Pro Tour, Dom. Well, I, you know, recently minted uh, set champion, which sounds so weird to say, uh, Ili Cassis, was uh, mooting the idea on Twitter today of like this high stakes uh eight man event like vintage and legacy five thousand dollar buy-in and the the people who do it well are like drafting instead of power nine and i i i don't think organized players gonna want to acknowledge the existence of that but that's you know maybe that's how we get it in the rotation <laughs> all right stan so we have the pro tour coming but the pro tour itself coming back what else 
Yeah, three pro tours, and then to cap the season will be a world championship. And it, I mean, in a way, those I, did did they actually go away? I guess not, right? They're still in worlds with people getting like their custom invite cards. And this next one is going to be World Championship twenty nine, and this is going to take place in the latter half of twenty twenty three as well. And this will also be a tabletop event. Yeah, what's what's wild about this though, I think, is it's sort of doing like a bigger tent world championship and i I, we'll talk about more about strengths and weaknesses of this announcement perhaps but i think this is a big strength in that it makes the concept of being the magic world champion a little bit more attainable like in terms of like the 16 to 32 ish people i think that were at most world championships in the past this is 128 yeah, uh, people from all over the world competing in paper, and so it's kind of like saying, "Hey, you did well at a pro tour. What happens next? You, you you're not going to necessarily uh, string together pro tour events after event after event. You can also say, "Hey, uh, I did well at a pro tour. I'm going to be one of the 128 people at this world championship, and if I win that, I'm going to not only get a bunch of cash, but I'm going to be the world champion, as opposed to the." the elite of the elite that usually end up at these world championships. Although I I think if you're one of the best 128 people, you're probably pretty elite. Yeah. So the, the history of the world championship is actually kind of interesting in this context. So if you go back to uh, the 2000s, like the very early 2010s before the, the change took place, the world championship or worlds as people called it was essentially just another pro tour. And it was, the end of the season, and it was almost like an afterthought. This is where we tie up all of the loose ends. And so if you, for some people, it was just another stop on the calendar. And it was also added to or diluted, depending on your perspective, by a bunch of the players who were on their national teams. And so it actually was, in the most literal sense, a world championship. You had players from all over the world congregating in this one place. And you had this this guarantee almost that, um, you know, some of the the smaller countries in Magic, like there's no guarantee for any given pro tour, you're going to have any players from uh, Paraguay, let's say, right? But for Worlds, you had this guarantee that not only were there going to be players there, there were going to be three or four of them, and you know maybe one of them could uh, make a deep run, put their country on the map, um, and so those aspects became decoupled in in 2012, and we had the shift to on the one hand. The, the world championship, trying to uh, crown the best player in the world. And that, that was rebranded then as the player's championship, which what does that even mean, right? Um, you know, world champion means something to everyone. Player's champion means nothing to anybody. And so again, <laughs> very basic branding. Um, but that, that was when we had this move to this very small, very exclusive tournament, you know, sometimes like 16 people or 24 people, something in that range. And then the World Magic Cup as a separate entity where that's when you had this uh, this global gathering of Magic players, if you like. And that event had this really unique character to it that I hope gets to be replicated in some form. And it seems like this system of uh, regional events and then those funnel into the Pro Tour maybe can capture some of that, but, but not all of it, potentially. And so I, I kind of like that this new model for the World Championship is meeting it in the middle where it feels like its own distinct event it's not just one more pro tour but it's not so small and so exclusive that some of the names you're really excited to see you know are going to be on the outside looking in probably um and so we also don't know how it's going to intersect with uh you know because there's no there's no 
gold or platinum style scaffolding to this. Um, and so the players who perform really well over the course of a season, but don't have that that one finish to their name, it's unclear what exactly what this system is going to do for them, but we know they are going to be rewarded in in some way. So all of that is to say, you need Worlds to be this signature event on the calendar, and it sounds like this is a good formula for that to happen. Great use of the word scaffolding, by the way. Shane, I'm glad you brought up numbers and, and, and the inclusivity of Worlds. Something I didn't mention is that the individual pro tours will also feature about 300 players. Yeah. That's kind of like, that's like, that's like, I thought that's kind of typical pro tour size. Am I wrong? Is it usually like 300 people? Uh, it, it, it varied. It, it usually was on the higher side of that. So 300, 400. Um, and that, that itself led to some debate over how big should the average pro tour be and that that is yeah. downstream of what your objectives are for the pro tour and, and how many people you want to be, at the the highest bit of the pyramid and, and so on um but yeah I, that 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 rough sizing is is not that new was the set championship that big too no so uh the one i, I played in just a few weeks ago was uh something like 230 people okay, okay. The, the one before that the inner championship because it was the first one in that season and the people who were being ejected from the npl and rivals ecosystem they all had the invite to that one and so that one was pretty big, and then this one was slimmed down a lot. So this is something that I think everyone's going to be really pumped about as well. The Pro Tours and Worlds, not only are they tabletop events, but they do have planned coverage, at least for those four tournaments. We're going to talk about all the other tournaments that feed into the Pro Tours, but whether or not there's additional coverage, that is to be decided. But yeah, like you're going to see high-level pay-per-play now on Twitch, or I don't know, maybe somewhere else, but coverage of some sort, cool. best players in the world shuffling their cards. Awesome. So yeah, let's talk about this this feeding mechanism, right? It's and and I think the what we'll probably be mentally doing as you talk about it is how does this compare to the previous model? If you can remember back in I don't even know when pre COVID pre uh, Mythic Championship days, I don't really remember what that was like. Yeah. So this structure um, or, or scheme, if you will, it's shaped like a um, like a, a triangle or a pyramid, uh, I guess you can call it, which for most players begins at the bottom with something called regional championship qualifiers. These qualifiers feed into a regional championship. The championship feeds into the Pro Tour and the Pro Tour feeds into Worlds. So four primary stages in this pyramid scheme or model. <laughs> system triangle as part of the system wizards is going to have 11 regional partners spanning every continent except antarctica and within each region wizards will partner with a tournament organizer to manage those local regional qualifiers as well as the regional championships yeah that's what blew my mind honestly is that they already have these regional tournament organizers selected and and worked and people that they've apparently either vetted or worked with in the past like in the u.s it's dreamhack which i i think is a very uh, uh relevant and experienced esports organizer is that correct stan that's my understanding i mean face-to-face games in canada if you follow magic in the in the u.s you probably have heard of or canada of course you've heard of face-to-face good games a huge game store out of australia and new zealand there's even uh some locations of them in the u.s uh i have not heard of 
ones in other areas, but that's because I'm not local to them. But I'm sure that these are all names that people in Brazil, Taiwan, Southeast Asia, Japan, Korea, China, you've I'm sure you've heard of them because they're getting legitimate tournament organizers to manage these regional championships. And also, interestingly, the qualifying structure for those regional championships is also determined by those organizers. So I'm curious to see how similar and how disparate uh, different those might be depending on things as related to the uh, the locations of people, of the number of people within those countries, the magic players that exist there. The U.S., of course, has tons of people, tons of space, and tons of magic players. So I'm guessing that those will be different than what Australia and New Zealand might have, but I'm not sure. That remains to be seen. Yeah, that's one thing we really don't know is will there be a standardized model for how events at that level take place. Because once you get to that stage of the the system, you kind of need there to be a level of uniformity to the proceedings. So people know what they're signing up for. And there's no sense of players in this one region are getting a, a unfair advantage or disadvantage or anything like that. I do really like that they're showing a broader understanding of the regions in this announcement. Because if you go back uh, a few years one issue that kept coming up was that they would have this uh, this mapping of magic to various regions, which didn't really reflect the experiences of people in those regions. So, for example, uh, you had uh, you know, North America is treated as one region. South America, Latin America is treated as one region. But if you're in Latin America, there is a very, very big difference between I'm a magic player in Mexico, I'm a magic player in Brazil, I'm a magic player in Chile, Argentina. And if you have this one regional tournament, let's say you just plonk it in the middle of Brazil, well, for any given place in South America, there's no guarantee that's going to be easier to get to than just flying to Miami or something if if the the North American tournament was being held there. And so the fact that they are, however imperfectly, and I'm sure people will, uh, you know, be be discussing the details of this, the fact that they are acknowledging that, you know, these regions deserve a more kind of granular treatment, I think that's a really good sign. And um, there, there are still some like weird uh, bundlings here. So like one region is Europe, the Middle East, and Africa, which <laughs> geopolitically you would not want to bundle all of those areas yeah. together. But for the sake of <laughs> magic, where it's essentially Europe as already this massive entity by itself, the Middle East, which like there's not a big magic presence, but it, it was always funny when, uh, you know, Shahar Shenhar, for example, who was a, he's a native of Israel and Israel got bundled with Europe for the sake of, you know, that world's invite, for instance. Um, And then in Africa, you know, there is a magic scene in South Africa. There's been exactly one GP there, I believe, in all of magic's history. Um, And and that's mostly the extent of it. So uh, there are some unique aspects to it, but some of that is is unavoidable, I think. Like, you have to group those players somewhere. Um, And then I I don't really have an informed perspective on whether the, uh, like, the, the Asian region... Uh, delineation makes any sense, but it, it it seems like that there's been some care put into it. Yeah, let's list off these regions really quickly. Region one, United States. Number two, Canada. Number three is EMEA, which is Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Number four is Australia, New Zealand. Number five is China. Number six is Japan, Korea. Number seven is Southeast Asia, which I think in, encapsulates India and some of the surrounding countries there. Uh, eight is Taiwan. Nine is Brazil. 
10 is Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean. And the final region is South America. So that's South America sans Brazil, likely because of the the language profile where Brazil is Portuguese speaking and the rest of South America is Spanish speaking. Yeah, and probably just sheer number of players, I imagine, as well. You, Dom, you mentioned that uh, one of the things that is to be decided is kind of the the nature of these two lower rungs of the pyramid. Um, and there's going to be some uniformity, but not every at every stage. So, for instance, I don't believe there's going to be specific top-down uniformity at the regional championship qualifier level. So, the most bottom rung, I think that is going to be largely up to tournament organizers. And I think... From a practical standpoint, we're going to see some of those look like single-day PTQs at your LGS or maybe like a large single-day event at a local banquet, hotel banquet hall or, or small convention center. Um, and I think that's going to have uh, be at the discretion of the TOs. The second rung, the regional championships, I think that actually has some stated Wizards uniformity there. Yeah. Um, and it and says we'll, there's three in each region. It says there's okay, three in each region will align with each of three pro tours. Does that mean three per pro tour? Or does that mean one per pro tour? It has to mean three, right? Because it's a feeding thing. I think it's one per pro tour. Okay. Yeah, okay. I, I think it's for each cycle, there is a, uh, a pro tour and a championship in each region that feeds that pro tour. And then there are three of those cycles in each year or you know section okay. on the calendar so the regional championship will be probably gp sized then yeah i think they're actually going to be gps-esque okay so the language they provided is that the regional championships will be one or two days based on event size these tournaments will be part, and this is a quote these tournaments will be part of a 3d event experience that caters to different size audiences hmm. oh so so yeah it's it's basically like a like a gp or a con yeah, I, I think that's kind of what we can expect is like vendors, side events, commander, corner. And that is really interesting because we've seen uh, some of these third-party events, uh, you know, CFB Vegas, uh, the SUG con events that have been run. And I assumed that would kind of be the model for GPs or whatever they record in this new universe, Magic Fest, as and when they returned. Um, but it was unclear exactly what role they would play in the ecosystem, right? So what what I assumed was the largest kind of open unit of paper play would be you go to one of these conventions, as I think it's fair to call them, and there's a lot going on, and there is a large competitive event there, whether limited or constructed, and the top X performers get invites to the next Pro Tour equivalent, but that that tournament is not the the main event, if you like, of the convention. It's not why we're all here. Most of us are here to play Commander or most of us are here to, you know, I- engage in this social experience as Magic players. And this is just one one piece of that pie. And so I don't know if events like that will continue and will also feed into the system in some way or if the regional championship is going to be the official version of that. And if you want to replicate that on a smaller scale without some of the pro tour invite implications then you you can do that yourself yeah i mean this is this is me being very speculative at this point but i think the only events like that that won't feed into this model might be like scg cons like if they decide to bring back their own internal circuit leaderboard what have you 
perhaps SCG can be involved in the DreamHack regional system that has like the qualifiers or the championships. We don't really know, but if anything, CFE Vegas, I think was kind of a proof of concept that like players are comfortable enough returning to paper play at such a huge level in these large spaces. As long as we'd like take, you know, whatever health precautions are necessary, like even to this day, SCG cons, I think, have vaxxed requirements or, or testing requirements. They, for they do now. And, this was not always a, <laughs> a given, mm. but uh, that, that is going to be one of the interesting things to see develop here is, you know, right now the COVID situation seems to be in a good place. There's no guarantee what that would look like yeah. in a few months or a few years, what have you. And so is there going to be any kind of top-down direction from Wizards over what the protocols are at each rung of the ladder? So the basic unit... Uh, at the very bottom of this pyramid is in-store play. They've made it very clear that's the focus. Like, that's the basic link. We hook you up to your local game store and then that kind of funnels you into these higher tiers. Um, but one of the issues that people experienced uh, during the like PPTQ, RPTQ era was that there was a there was a lot of variance, frankly, in the local game store experience where I, yeah. I'm lucky enough here in Toronto that I have your know, very good game stores uh, here, you know, Harry T, face-to-face, that, you know, who's going to be organizing um, the the regional event up here. But even if you go outside of that, if, uh, you know, it's getting to the end of the PBC season and you haven't qualified yet and you're, you're venturing into the the nether regions of your province and you, you end up at this, this <laughs> shabby-looking game store where there's, you, 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 some kind of disease is clearly being incubated in the bathroom there. Like, <laughs> I, I do wonder... How you know how stringent the criteria are going to be when it comes to these are the stores that really get to uh, yeah. you know vault people into that process. Well, that that was kind of an issue I think in the the PPTQ to RPTQ system uh, that was what like 2017 18 ish era. Like the the stores that were would ha- would hold PPTQs and the RPTQs themselves i remember it being a thing for people to travel to like the sparsely populated areas of the country where there'd be like 40 people at the regional uh, PTQ uh, so that they could have a better chance of spiking it or something like that so i guess at least at, at this level it takes one level of sort of uh population and spikiness scale of the area and says, okay, you might have qualified through like a a PPTQ at your store and you're headed to the regional championship. Uh, But yeah, you're going to be going up against 1500 other people who (laughs) have done the same thing. And and if if you're not going to be able to spike that. Yeah. There's no, it looks like at least no gaming the system in that sense. And we mentioned what's going to happen to GPs. If you, if you, draw the comparison here. If uh, if the regional championship is meant to replace those and you run the numbers, well, we have, what is it, 11 regions and three seasons, and each season, each of those regions has one of these events. That's uh, 33 GPS-esque uh, tournaments, which is really not that different from how it was in most years in the past, depending on what OP looked like at the time. But given that most of these events will be happening in parallel with one another in any given season the idea of the really hardcore GP grinders where you're, you're, you're jet-setting across the world and you're, you're playing 25 GPs a year, that is a thing of the past. Like, mathematically, 
you will not be able to do that under the system. And I think this feeds into the some of the larger philosophy behind this, which is you are not meant to be a professional magic player under the system. There's no uh, there's no gravy train. There's no uh, player club, gold, platinum, uh, anything like that. So if you want to be a constant participant here, then you show up to the tournaments, you keep doing well in the tournaments, and this is one thing that I think will be very welcome is uh, consistent performance is rewarded, where you know if you do decently well over the course of three pro tours and you get an invite to the next one and then there's a kind of rolling check over over your last three pro tour finishes so i imagine the best players in the world you're going to see them participating in every one of these pro tours and hopefully winning money there and so on but you won't get money just for showing up to one of these events for example right and it doesn't sound like you're gonna have your way paid to attend these either which is something that uh, we do see in something like Flesh and Blood, where you win a, you can win a, a Pro Tour invite to France, but they're not flying you out there. Yeah, th- this is. We, we don't know though. Uh, yeah, yeah, we don't let's, know. Let's let's be clear. We don't know what that system looks like. Whether because there will be some invites for Pro Tours, there will be some invites for Hall of Famers. Like we just don't know who's being paid what to attend what. So let's make that. Clear. Yeah, this I think was part of the motivation in going to the regional player store system that we saw get a kind of one look in early 2020 just before covid where if you're trying to cut back on your marketing expenses or looking to use those in a more judicious way then the idea of we're going to fly 300 nerds to japan or sydney (laughs) that does seem like an unnecessary expense if if you're being really hard nosed about it and and frankly there was a massive gap in their marketing before i remember when they announced the the 2016 season and it's wait hold on you're telling me if I win this RPTQ here in England. You're going to fly me to Australia to play in a Magic tournament? Like, they should be shouting that from the rooftops. I would be shouting that from the rooftops if I won that opportunity. And yet it felt like they were weirdly reluctant to make that part of the messaging. Even though (laughs) there was this whole play the game, see the world nonsense. The Mm -hmm. one time they actually maximized that opportunity for you to see the world, they, they weren't making a big deal out of that. And so with all of that in mind, I think it makes sense to have these regional stops be the first port of call there and i imagine you're going to have to pay your own that pay your own way there excuse me which again going back to what we said about regions in the past that has different implications if it's you know i I live in chicago i hop on a delta flight to phoenix or something versus i'm in south america and it's either like a three-day bus journey or i'm paying you know a month's salary to to fly to this location like the, the implications there are a lot different um, but even so i imagine that level you pay your own way and then if you qualify for the pro tour m- depending on where that's located which we i don't think we have a sense of that yet then maybe then flights work their way in or maybe the idea is if you are qualified for those then you've won enough in one of these prior tournaments that your winnings can get you there I, we, we don't know yet yeah you guys touched on a couple of really important points that i just want to make sure is is highlighted this system, this regional championship qualifier, RCQ system, is designed to provide avenues through WPN stores and open tournaments. So you are going to see some amount of this at your local game store or a local game store in your region. And the the bit about open tournaments, like that's the section that I think kind of opens the door for something like CFB Vegas or something like SCG cons where maybe they have like all these tournaments and events within the convention. One of them might be able to get you into a regional championship. 
Yeah, one of the other the drawbacks to the PPGQ, RPGQ thing before, and just because the focus here is on store-level play, it doesn't mean that's what they're trying to emulate, but worth keeping in mind that um, I think these big open events are especially appealing for the people who, especially as the, the core demographic of Magic gets older, has more income, but maybe more demands on their time as well. The idea of... I'm going to spend my weekend, which maybe I could be spending in all of these other ways now, just going to some anonymous game store and where I maybe don't know any people and trying to win this event where like, if I don't win, then I feel like I've wasted my day. That does not appeal to them. And then even if I do, right, I then maybe have to take another day off work to go to this RPGQ and, and hope to spike that as well. Versus just the the social experience of one of these big conventions where even if my main event doesn't do doesn't go well, I'm seeing all these people from across the country that I haven't seen in years and there's there's a ton of other stuff to do and I can do other stuff in the city and you know find a good restaurant to eat at stuff like that. I think if you're trying to let those people have a foothold in which you know if if the idea is you can't be a professional magic player you you should have a real job then people with real jobs sometimes you know they they need to be able to justify taking this unit of time and focusing it on the game. And that's much easier if there's all of these other bells and whistles attached to make it more appealing versus I'm going to drive into rural Ontario for two hours and try and, you know, <laughs> spike this PVTQ. Like that, that doesn't appeal to them in the same way. A couple additional paths they've mentioned is online play. So Magic Arena is going to have a way to get you into regional championships and maybe pro tours. Magic Online is going to have this as well. Details are somewhat scarce at this point, but from the sound of it, MTGO Path is going to be very reflective of what we still have right now, which is like online PTQs, as well as the MTGO MTGO Championship Series um, that we mentioned, I think, in the breakdown briefly. But those will be one of the ways to get into some of these higher level events. And then Magic Arena Pathways will be available, but they're not going to be announced for about a month. They so have, we'll have more on that later. They need to figure out exactly how many gems and revives you can you can have. Yeah. So let's five thousand, <laughs> hundred thousand gold. Let's get into the meat of the discussion, though, which is the the pro tour itself, or, or most of the meat, I imagine, right? And so I think like you you bring back the name pro tour, as Don mm-hmm. mentioned, that has a lot of history, it has a lot of cachet, it has a lot of expectations. And so it seems like they did not want to dash any of those expectations because it's essentially what existed prior to kind of the quote unquote esports overhaul, right? We've got the the three day setup with Friday and Saturday being Swiss and then cut to the top eight on Sunday. Uh, those may not be the exact days. I suspect they will be. Um, and it has the, <laughs> the split format of draft and constructed. And as we mentioned, uh, Pioneer is the first one planned. Modern and Standard are also planned for the other two Pro Tours in this season. So uh, we will have some stuff to talk about on uh, this podcast, and I imagine Dominaria's Judgment. Um, So let's start there. Uh, That's good, right? I mean, it's kind of onerous to have a a three-day event if you're, you know, you need to take that much time out of your life, but it's still, that's kind of the classic model that we expect. It's the amount of time really required to give the events their, their, uh, their due, I think. Yeah. If, so you're, you're taking this time out of your life, potentially off of work, you're hopping on a plane, depending on where you live, you want that to be in service of something. You want the event to have that level of cachet and 
it, it sounds like, and I think the ProTour branding coming back is, is part of this, you know, the paper ProTour does have that cachet to it. That being said, I, I think there is a cautionary tale here where if you look back to 2019, where the MPL rival system was being introduced, and at the same time, the previous system, it wasn't abruptly terminated. You had these two kind of tracks going in parallel for yeah. most of that year, where you had the online play ramping up, and then also the the last set of paper pro tours that year of paper tournaments there there were some grumbles about like the specific formats you know modern was in a bad state standard was in a bad state um but just in terms of how those events were treated and taken seriously and the level of cachet that they had um it really felt like it was this kind of shell of its former self um and so there does need to be this this vibe that the people at the top are taking this seriously, both at Watsi and just the players themselves. And I think at the outset, there certainly will be, but they need to make sure that commitment is sustained year by year if this is going to regenerate. Because if the idea is, well, the system was perfect back in 2016, 2017, it wasn't. And you should know that because you were there, but let's grant the premise for now, right? If you just want to turn back the clock and go to that point, well, then we've seen how that looks when it is going well and you've seen how it looks when it's not going well and we really need to make sure it's the first one because otherwise it's just that same disappointment all over again yeah uh i hear you for all the pro tours i've been in some of you know someone disappointed me so um <laughs> but it, it, it was the formats though the experiences were, were life-changing yeah you know it's always it's about it's a gathering not the magic um these events of course as you mentioned 300 players and the results what it's interesting so as Dom was getting at earlier, uh, they're kind of doing not quite a but pro point type system where you accumulate points, you make like a certain level, and for that level, you're going to get paid a certain kind of amount or have a certain amount of your travel subsidized or get certain levels of invites into future events. Really what it is, it's kind of more of a sustainment for high level play but also i think a slightly healthier model of doing that which we'll get at in the near future uh because primarily the reason i say that is because it does not necessarily require going to everyone like it, it allows sort of gaps and real life to occur because it looks at i'll just cut to the chase i guess it looks at kind of your past three events not the last three events. I believe that's accurate in what I'm saying, but I could be wrong. So let's talk about how you qualify for the pro tour though, before we move on to that. Yeah. So I'm going to do my best not to get too deep in the weeds um, and try to keep this as relevant to our listeners and and people who have competitive ambitions. One thing that is very clear though, is that the very first pro tour season is going to have a slightly more generous seeding model because they're trying to transition an this existing old system into a new one. So we're going to see, you know, some number of players from the last world championship get invites to the PTs. We're going to see some number of players in the streets of new Campana set set championship, get invites to the PTs. Um, current magic hall of famers will get one pro tour and one regional championship invite per season. So Dave, if you're listening, you got one more tournament ahead of you. What Shane touched on that um, I think is really interesting in terms of the future of this model and chaining together invites is something called adjusted match points. Um, I think it's going to be 
often referred to as amps. And the math behind amps is a little dubious to me. I don't think there's a very clear like <laughs> formula that explains how it works, but they're tracked on a rolling basis rather than a seasonal basis. Yeah. And and you will get amp based invites from your last th- from the last three yes, posters right. of a season. Yeah, I was wrong. It's actually potentially just as potentially just as unhealthy, uh, encouraging people to, you know, try to string together these invites and qualify for each one. I mean, yes and no. So what'll happen is if you have 39 points from your la- from the last three PTs, you get into the next pro tour. Just you have an invite. Yeah. So 39 um, amps and explain, explain what amps are. Basically they're points that you're awarded based on your record at a pro tour event. It's just match points minus nine, right? That's all it is. Oh, that's the formula. Yeah, it's, yeah. So it's it, yeah. The amps is total match points at a PT minus uh, minus nine. So let's say you go uh, nine and seven. That would be nine times three is twenty seven minus nine gets you eighteen amps. If you go ten oh. and six instead of thirty uh, match points, you get twenty twenty one amps. I think what that really is is kind of a um, what is like a handicapping system almost, where it's like it it removes removes a certain level of, uh, of, of match points. So let's say like the example they give is in the, the stuff that we saw at least was you went nine and seven, you got 18, you went 10 and six, you got 21. And then pro tour three, you went three, three drop. You got effectively, you got zero amps. So your total is 39, which then qualifies you for the next pro tour, even though you, you quote unquote scrubbed out of the third pro tour. Yeah. And, and I think to your healthy point, we, that person didn't necessarily have to play the third pro tour. Exactly. They could have just said, no thanks, they already had the 29 points. They could have won 0-0 drop. Correct. Yeah, they could have saved on their points, on their uh, their credit card points, specifically. Their minds. I I will say, I think most of the unhealthy incentives that existed in the previous system were more tied to to GPs, uh, where the volume of travel, the volume of play, needing to to rack all of that up. And th- there were some modifiers they worked in, like we're only counting your X best finishes, for example, and that helped to temper that a little bit. Um, but, you know, I-, I think it's fair to expect that to stay on at the Pro Tour level, you should be doing decently well at the Pro Tours, especially when, you know, in the past, this was one of the curious features of the system was you would have people who would not actually do that well at the Pro Tours themselves, but they were doing very well at the GPs. And so that combined was enough to string together gold for the next year, for instance. Um, and it seems like now it is much more about, well, you know, show up on the day and, and perform well. And if you do, then we'll see you next time. A brilliant input there. I, you know, yeah. I, I mean, I wasn't grinding GPs and like, I don't think I really understood the impact that that could have had on like the aspiring spikes, not Everett's, but lowercase aspiring spikes, like mental health and, and the longevity of that process and the sustainability of that process. And, I think that's a really good point that, you know, perhaps on some level, this helps um, solve for that. And, and likewise, to your point previously about it's going to be much harder in this system for people to grind out these regional championship qualifiers or regional championships. Part of that is because these events are going to be date locked. Yeah. And there's going to be like a specific calendar period when these tournament organizers can host these qualifier or championship events. So you can only be in one place at a given time, right? Maybe you might be able to chain a couple of tournaments like over the course of 
two to three weeks, just because that's um, when the span that's going to allow for them. But in general, like these things are going to, I think move pretty quickly and you're only going to have a couple shots and more often than not, you're going to be mostly incentivized to do it as close to yourself as possible. Yeah. This kind of gets us, I think moving into kind of talking about what we think about this and how we think this might actually play out. So I think it's interesting that effectively what we have here is the, I think we'll see close to the execution of the in-store preliminary Pro Tour qualifiers, a large regional Pro Tour qualifier that's also built around kind of like a magic fest environment. And then that feeds into the, the, the Pro Tour and into the World Championship if you're elite good. What that eliminates are Grand Prix. So there's and because that's and I think there's a very good one one good reason for that is there's no longer a pro scene. Excuse, well, there's no longer a paid professionals for being a Magic the Gathering player. They were very clear about that uh, a few months ago when they effectively said we are ceasing the idea of pro Magic. And I think what they're giving people back is a system that doesn't necessarily reward grinding at a you know, high level in terms of Grand Prix includes in terms of travel in terms of accumulating pro points. And they are bringing that back down to say, Hey, you're going to have a series of local events over maybe like a span of, let's say three to four weekends. There's going to be something within uh, five miles to 500 miles of you, of you. And if you want to grind one, two of those every weekend, you probably have the chance of that. That's what people do right now. And I'm, I'm sorry to keep bringing this up. It's just kind of the newest version we have of a competitive paper game, uh, Flesh and Blood. That's what they do with their Pro Tour qualifying season. It's about three to four weekends. Uh, there's typically going to be one store having one on Sunday, one store having one on Saturday. And you'll find one within one to five hours of you, depending on how far you want to drive, right? So people can grind those until they they win and they get to go to the Pro Tour. I think the same thing will happen with these uh, regional qualifiers where nice, cool local game stores all over the area um, will, be quali- will, will be holding these tournaments. People will be traveling to them solo with friends. They'll be trying to earn their, their regional bid and go on from there. And I think that kind of brings the game not not necessarily back down, but it removes a potentially poisonous carrot from the system, which was I can become a not very well-paid professional by Wizards of the Coast by spending a lot of my time traveling all over the joint. And I think if you just have a few times during the year where it's like, hey, uh, significant others or my friends or whatever, hey, we're, let's go, let's go travel. Let's go hit up this thing like a few hours away and maybe I'll spike it. And that's something that I think is 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 good and cool in a different way it kind of creates pockets of time where you know like this i'm going to be grinding and practicing and then the rest of the time i don't have to worry about it because there's nothing for me to be stressing that i'm not at so shane likes the system well i think there's there's strengths and weaknesses i think it's i think it's good to give people seasons where they're like this is this is the season in which i'm going to be thinking a lot about modern and practicing about modern and i'll have a few weekends i travel as far as i'm comfortable to try to spike a tournament and make this big regional event dom what's your knee-jerk reaction to kind of like the big picture yeah i am cautiously optimistic i think uh you know it's 
that they're basically creating an entire new system from scratch. And so there's going to be some stuff that has to be worked out and, you know, the exact calibration of this is how many AMPs you get for this result or whatever. Maybe that's going to change as, you know, we, we see the system in practice. But as a blueprint for what this should look like, this this all sounds pretty good to me. Yeah. And I think the uh, the regional element to it, like that's one I have the most questions about. But I think that if they do want to work in some of these third-party uh, TOs, this is actually a, a great level to pitch it out because with the, the Pro Tour or the set championships, you can't really hand out too many invites without really diluting the significance of the tournament. But for the regional event, which are meant to be these big occasions, but also like gatekept in some way, then offering an invite to that, like if you have, for example... SUG Con is coming to my hometown this weekend. And so if I do well enough at this, I get to go to regionals. So that's that's enough of like a, an added cherry on top without being such an incentive that it like overwhelms anything else that might be on offer. So I like that aspect. I do wonder if, you know, I would still love to see something which is explicitly national. I think getting to call yourself national champion and compete for that title, like that is just fundamental to any competitive endeavor. And I think it's a really, you know, when we saw nationals go away and then come back in 2017, 2018, that was so well received um, compared to like the WMCQ system. Uh, so I'd like to see that work its way into the mix. But um, just in big picture terms, I, I, I'm a lot more optimistic than I expected to be coming into the announcement. I'll, I'll say that much. Yeah, I, I think not to, to hijack your initial thoughts, Dan, too, but uh, to hopefully give you more to, 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 to speak on as well, which is it's, it, it's interesting that it also, it doesn't give us like a, a national championship, but it also doesn't give us a store champion. Like I, when, when I started hearing rumors or thoughts about, Oh, what's the future of competitive magic look like? We talked about this on the episode, maybe, you know, three or four months at this point is maybe that means that there's a bigger opening for uh, like, game day champion type stuff to reappear for inter-store and intra-store type championships where it's like it it really gives something back to the casual spikes to the lgs grinders to people who don't really want to travel and but they do want to have a reason to attend their store on a given weekend and have a cool local champion or have some kind of local championship points that accrue that aren't just the design of like a local store that thought up a cool system, but it's Watsy supported. They're giving out prizes for those events and they're supporting that scene. Uh, what we got was something a lot bigger than I expected, honestly, in this announcement, which is we went essentially back to pro tours and explicitly pro tours honestly and but we didn't get much about or anything besides yeah you'll have regional qualifiers at your lgs kind of like you had pptqs before so a bit of good news there we didn't touch on this because this wasn't the you know the, the point of the announcement but when i was on that press call i i asked whether or not there's something about this system that is designed to incentivize attending your LGS on a regular basis versus, you know, like every once in a while, you're going to have this qualifier event, come on out and you can participate. Right. And Blake actually responded to this one specifically for me. And that was Blake on the line. I got, I got Blake. He said my name, the current LGS systems that they have aren't going away. They just don't feed into this. 
So we'll still have like game days, something like game days and store championships and other like WPN events where you might get really special promos or or other bragging rights. Um, they're just a they're just not part of the Pro Tour system. And I and, and personally, I think that's okay. Like, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if the same store can foster both environments where you can have like a certain cash level of players that just like just want to play for the Pro Tours in a deck box and a play mat, like go for it. And you maybe having bigger ambitions beyond that isn't particularly sustainable. That's cool. If you want to compete for like the biggest prize in the world and have the capacity to kind of like enter that journey in your town every once in a while, I think that's also ideal. I think I just wanted that outline more explicitly. Like, how are we supporting the smaller scale stuff? And I understand that they want to hit the big scale first because it's it's a little bit it's more grandiose. It's bigger, you know. It's 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 going back in some ways to what people had and a lot of people really enjoyed. But I think there's a big space for what a lot of other people enjoy, and I think perhaps even more people enjoy, which is just like what's happening at my local level. But I don't need to harp on that. That's I think that's a future announcement, a future thing that Watsi can build on. I mean, I, I am excited at the, a potential de-incentivizing of the arena ladder. I think that, you know, the model we have right now, one, one of the data points that came out of the uh, the most recent set championship, and I, I think Grindcast talked about this, which is the conversion rate of the players who qualified via arena was just like so much lower than the conversion rate of of the Dom Harveys of the world. And like, People who get to enter because they're in the MPL or in Rivals or, or qualify through some other means and have access to like this testing team, they just did like so much better. And right now, Arena was the most accessible method of reaching like the highest level of events. And having more of those, I think, is going to be super inclusive. And I think, in general, Magic needs to be as inclusive as possible for every player type. Whether it's the casual, the kitchen table casual, the people who just go to GPs to play in the commander section of the hall, or those of us who maybe have bigger ambitions and, and, and think we have a shot at the Pro Tour one day. Um, and now with more ways to enter the Pro Tour or even compete in regional championships, I think that's just going to be a way to see more up-and-comers, more of our uh, favorite players like get their time in the, in the limelight. Um, and, you know, the names we don't know yet because they're too young to participate or they haven't started playing the game and they're the future champions that we're going to be talking about in a, you know, in a few years from now. What's the, the generation after Zoomers? Like <laughs> that class of players. I, I don't think they've officially been given a name yet, but uh, yeah, I, I, I agree <laughs> with the broad point there. Yeah. So Stan, what you're talking about makes me think about kind of like, what does this give people as, as in terms of goal setting? What are the, what is the carrot we now have in front of us? And I think I actually want to ask you this first, Dom, because you you were involved much more heavily in any competitive system than we have ever been. And how do you see competitive players, people who consider themselves competitive players, people who earned money uh, and made a name for themselves on some kind of tour, how do you see them responding to this? So it, it may be that there's not an explicit choice involved. They may get to dive into this system and try and uh, chase the goals there. And just in general, I think just the idea of having 
something to work towards, whether it's a leaderboard or what have you, that is such an easy way. I don't know if there's some like primal part of your brain that just wired to to chase that stuff, but um, players love that. And it's an easy way to get their engagement kind of over the, the longer term. And so I think it's really good to have a system where you can dive into that fully to the extent that you want to, and then also supplement that with, I can hit up some SEGs, I can hit up you know, local stuff. Um, I can get my competitive fix how I want. And so, yeah, like the the very small group of people who were jet-setting around the world every weekend, like, yeah, the system is... They're going to have a different place in the system. Although, I imagine they will be happier with this turn of events than they uh, were with the past year or two. And honestly, that lifestyle, I don't think was sustainable of, um, you know, needing people to devote themselves to this so, so fully... So if this is a system and it seems like the ingredients for that are there, that does allow for people to kind of dip in and out and there will be times where you don't have much other stuff going on and you can really focus on this and then times where you can draw back a bit and, and have it be part yeah. of a more balanced equation. Um, that, that's good. And I, I think that is what you should really be shooting for. I, I guess my real question is... okay. Like, well, no, not, no, not, not, I, don't, I don't mean to you. Like you didn't answer my my uh, my my subtle question that I hit in there. Um, is my my question that I still have in my mind is like, does removing some of the financial incentives of this make people in interest? Like, does the competitive drive enough make people flock to this in perhaps the same way that they were playing it before, or is it kind of actually? better for more people because they don't have to grind to try to get to the status that they need to like maintain the being on the train or something like that. Yeah. I, I think there's a really important point here. I want to, to drop in as we talk about this. One of the points that Huey made very explicitly is that this system is not designed for people to make a living entirely off of tournament winnings. You know, maybe the person who wins the regionals and then wins a pro tour and then wins worlds will make enough to like sustain themselves for a year or two, perhaps like, I don't think we know what the price payouts are only what the pools are, but that said, you know, Huey actually says like the future of a living in magic, the gathering is people who subsidize their tournament play with like content creation or other forms of income. Okay. That that's the bit that scares me because if there's anything that we've learned over the past uh, few months, it's that, I mean, magic content creation in particular, or just media jobs, are a very precarious, you know, um, <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, yeah. place to be in, right? And so I think the timing of that is a little odd. And then also, I think, so th- there was this idea in the past of the tournaments, if you were a pro, you understood that, well, magic's a game with a lot of a lot of variants involved in it, and... You know, even the best players only win, what, like 65% of the time or whatever, and that's the true Hall of Famers. And so that by itself can never be the recipe for any kind of salary or any like reliable income year by year. But this is the loss leader almost for, I make a name for myself doing this, and then I get one of these really cushy content gigs. Um, and that's, that's where, that's the moneymaker. That's where the money is. I think that was true for maybe like a dozen people at most at any given time. And I mean, I don't even know, I dread to think what the figure is uh, right now. Um, So that part of it, and like Huey is one of those people, right? Who couldn't command top dollar 
and who also was doing quite well for himself uh, financially just playing tournaments because he was that good. Um, so that part does strike me as a little tone deaf, I have to say. But I mean, I mean, I wasn't there for the comment and it's one comment in a very complicated presentation. So yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's Wizards' onus to make this people's jobs per se. And like, if if at least they're being transparent about the fact that like, we're just organizing a tournament series that we know players want and care about. Yeah. Um, and, and they tried making playing competitive magic a living for a class of players. And perhaps part of that was mismanagement. Like, I'm not saying that the MPL was handled as well as it could have been, but it just didn't work out. And we had the experience that we had, and now we're trying something else. And I think this more inclusive experience is better than what we have now, or at least what they tried to do with MPL. Likewise, I think it's stuff like this that helps nurture the future of content too. And maybe if this system existed, you know, you know, let's say alternative universe, there was no pandemic and we've had a system like this for the last couple of years, like maybe on some level, like SCG would still have all the writers that it had a couple months ago because people would have a higher appetite for competitive content because they had more avenues to compete. Yeah, I, I so I think COVID, no matter how good a state the game of Magic was or Magic OP was or Magic content was, COVID was going to be a body blow to all of those. And there was no guarantee that yeah. any of those were going to survive. But it's, you know, all of that is downstream of decisions made by Watsi and the decisions made by Watsi during COVID in terms of OP and everything, to say nothing of the state the game was in during that time, it's like they took a yeah. bad hand that they were, had to play on behalf of everyone <laughs> in the community and played it just horrifically poorly um, from yeah. my perspective. Uh, so it looks like this is a change in direction and, you know, maybe a new dawn. So, yeah. But Dom, they made so much money. Oh, good. I'm so <laughs> like, glad. I, how, I, I'm gl- how bad could it have been? I, I'm glad that Chris Cox or whoever just gets to fail upwards into ever more senior positions, raking in, you know, seven or eight what digits a year. Record- well, yeah. I, Buddy, record, record-setting record profits. That's that's not a failure. The, in the comments of Dominic Harvey do not represent the dive down. <laughs> Capitalism, baby. Let's go. <laughs> Tweets are your own. Yes. Okay, no, um, no, it, well, uh, I think we agree with you. So, what I think is important <laughs> here, though, or, or what I think is important, is it offers more people more realistic incentive to try to get better at the game. And that's really what we're about. And I, and I know that, you know, Dominaria's judgment exists not only to have a fun way to talk about the game, but to help other people get better at the game as well. So I, I would imagine that you're aligned in this and that more people caring about the game on a competitive level, whether or not it lets them support themselves as competitive players, is likely a net good. Oh, and I, 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 not to cut you off, I love the fact oh, that hopefully at some point next year, uh, if everything goes to plan, I will get to talk with Ari about what can we expect from the modern Pro Tour, right? That's... Right. I mean, mm-hmm. as a fan of the game and as someone who's making content, you know, you, you love to see that in, in every angle. And it's never too soon to make predictions, and I think that's how we should close the show. <laughs> Call your shot now. You look like a genius. What's gonna what's gonna win the what the the summer of twenty twenty three modern pro tour? Well, I hey, I, I don't know if uh if like there's Modern Horizons three or something scheduled to come out around that time or if there's gonna be well, that some might, that might be a handy one in hand in hand release. <laughs> 
Oh man, we'll see. So, <laughs> is it, okay. Um, is there anything missing though, Stan? Do you think there's anything missing that you would want from this? I said that I, I wanted a little bit more about what's what can like a smaller scale local tournament scene look like with support from Watsi. Is there anything that you would like more of? I would like more confirmed coverage at different stages of the path. Um, regional qualifiers, you know, maybe an LGS can stream that if they want to. I, I think it's very difficult for Watsi to kind of have guidelines for that. I am a little nervous that because the regional championships will be managed by tournament organizers and won't necessarily be under Watsi's management, there will be less incentive and, and, and less likelihood to see that level of competition shared in some kind of method other than like deckless after the fact. And the cool thing about the system is I think that the regional championships are going to attract a lot of players that people want to see play. And if we don't get, you know, like it's a resource, it's also entertainment, but if we don't get some amount of that and and, and really ultimately if tournament organizers don't feel the need to like pay for that um, because Watsi isn't going to fund it for them, then I'm, I'm, you know, I, I think the game will be a little, or the tournaments will be a little worse for them. Um, just because, like, you know, having coverage adds some amount of prestige to to stuff like this, and I think maybe a good incentivizer for people to actually come out and and test their metal. How about you, Dom? Is there anything that was was missing from this, or you wish we had more information about, or just kind of structurally not there? I, I think I kind of mentioned uh, all of it. It is interesting that we don't really know how Arena is going to factor into all of this because I assumed, like my like watching what happened in 2019 with these kind of two systems uh, converging and then going in the opposite direction, I assumed that was kind of the fate of Magic anyway and COVID was just accelerating that where if paper did come back at this level, it would just be a gateway to the Arena events and that's where your attention is meant to be. And now it seems like it's almost the opposite. So we don't know if the set championship model, is that going to survive in some form? Will there be high-stakes arena events? Because right now, honestly, there is not that much reason to care about arena from a competitive standpoint, unless you want to play in the big arena tournaments. And if those go away, then is there, is there any reason at all? Like, we, we just don't know yet. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. I would love nothing more than to qualify for the regional championship while playing best of one in the bathroom. <laughs> That's a great origin story for your eventual uh, <laughs> winner's interview. Yeah, at least for my byline bio on wherever I get to write one day. I mean, this is cool. Dom, thank you so much for being here and, and kind of help put all of this into perspective for us. Uh, obviously, like we have the casual spike POV, but you bring a, a certain caliber of player and and experience that I think we certainly would not have accounted for. So I'm really grateful for your input and, and just, you know, always being a good sport. <laughs> well, I, a good chap. Well, thank you. I, I mean, it's always a pleasure to talk to you guys. And uh, I mean, if there's anything else you want to pick my brain on while I'm here, happy to do that. Uh, otherwise I'll just eagerly await the next invitation, I guess. Yeah. Cross pod pollination. Go listen <laughs> to Dominaria's judgment. I mean, I suppose if we could, if we're going to talk about anything, it's it, it's got to be slow Gurk the overslime. But I mean, I, I love me a good bonus episode. Yeah. <laughs> I trophied with a deck. That, that's all there is to say <laughs> about that. Let's before we truly, truly wrap up, Dom. Can you tell our listeners one more time where can they find you online? 
Where can they read your article, see your pithy tweets, or maybe even rent some of your time for some one-on-one coaching? Yeah, uh, so you can follow me and just uh, bask in my glorious tweets at uh, at Dom and Javier on Twitter. And if you go there, I have a Linktree page link that has links for uh, coaching, articles on SUG, uh, the podcast, which you can find manually uh, on Patreon.com uh, slash Dominaria's underscore judgment. Uh, you can find the podcast on Twitter at Dominaria underscore pod. Um, and I guess you can just find it every week on Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, I believe the saying goes. Right on. Dom is a good coach. I can I can speak from personal experience. Um, I've I've been winning more thanks to the time we've we've had to work together. So thanks, thank you on a personal note. And hopefully someone listening to this is like, all right, let's do it. Let's go work with Dom and, and make him to the next regional championship. All right, that does finally wrap up this week's show. It was a good one. Thank you for sticking around, everybody. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. Make sure you subscribe to Dominaria's Judgment so you can hear the people we listen to as well. And if you use Apple Podcasts or Spotify, consider giving all of us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to our show, you can tweet us at the dive down, all one word. You can email the dive down at gmail.com. You can also support us via Patreon over at patreon.com slash the dive down. You can also support us while renting magic online cards over at manatraders.com. If you use promo code the dive down 2022, all one word, you'll get 15% off your first two months of renting magic online cards. You can also use that same promo code over at Barrister and Man for some soaps or other grooming products. You know, smell better when you shave with Barrister and Man. Stan, Stan, I got back from my vacation, and the first thing I did was uh, take a shower and shave with Barrister and Man products. I can't, t- I can't take that big old tub of soap with me. It was, I know, oh, it's, man. It, it's hard to travel with shaving soap, but some, t- you know, some of us look good with the five o'clock shadow. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Space Blood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and play the. Pro Tools!